Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing okay. I got my COVID booster yesterday, so I have been fighting oh, the side effects most of the getting day. Getting mine Saturday. Yeah, well, mine, you know, those side effects, right? They're pretty bad, but then all of a sudden when they're over, they're over. It's kind of weird, so I feel fine now. I felt terrible all day, but I feel fine now, so that's good. Uh, we have a good show today. Our interview is with some members of the Historically Black Neighborhood Assembly who are organizing opposed to the, the West End TIF, the, the West End Opportunity Partnership, the WEOP, um, whatever you want to call it we, we've been talking about this issue for years uh, when it was passed uh, you know we talked about it at length uh, in the legislative session when it when it did act actually go into law we've tried to talk a lot about it as it's been implemented um, but it but it's a pretty divisive topic i think and and uh the folks that are organizing against it you know um they they get quoted in the media a lot and i think that there's a lot of flying around uh, about it but but you know i felt like it was really important for us to talk to the folks who are you know most directly impacted by the WEOP. It, it affects the whole city. That was something they were very clear about. But yeah, certainly most directly impacted um, and, and hear their side. So so I felt like it was a really good interview. We hope to get somebody who's in favor of the WEOP to talk on the other side. But this is one of the most complicated issues, I think, in all of Kentucky politics right now. And, and we just wanted to kind of dig into it. So uh, I, I thought it went really well. What did you think, Jasmine? Yeah, I thought it went really well. I enjoyed hearing from all of them. And and it's, it's often been hard to like find information about what's going on and the historically black neighborhood assembly has been trying to get that information out to people so i really appreciate their effort and glad they came to talk to us absolutely before we talk to them though we do have a couple of things we want to talk about i am going to be given a fundraising update the pre-60 uh that is the jargon for term for the the fundraising report that comes out 60 days prior to the election uh those were all supposed to be submitted last week so we got a bunch of those i think most if not all of them are in now there's probably some people who are still straggling. I'm sure there are, um, but but we kind of look into them and, and who is uh, who's in who's raised the most, who's struggling, that kind of stuff. What's going on there? And, and then Jasmine's going to talk to us about a, a real crisis that's going on with the Department of Juvenile Justice. So without any further ado, let's get into the fundraising stuff. So. Yeah, Jasmine, um, unsurprising to me, the biggest fundraisers for the general election are the two candidates for Louisville mayor. That's Craig Greenberg, who's the Democrat, and Bill DeRiff, who's the Republican. Greenberg, though, has more than doubled up DeRiff. He's raised $1.2 million for the general election. DeRiff has managed to raise $525,000. Craig Greenberg had about 414,000 or 414 people give the maximum amount that's $2,000 uh, for the general election including several members of the Yarmouth family Adam and Melissa Edelin and no fewer than 12 people with the last name of Brown who the Brown family uh, Brown Foreman a very big deal in Louisville politics um, they give money to a lot of politicians. 12 packs also max donated to Craig Greenberg, including several banks, several labor organizations, and the realtors, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting that the realtors are always involved in politics, but they they kind of go back and forth as to and as to which side they um, support. 82 people max donated to Bill DeRiff, including Ann Northup, who used to serve as the congressperson from the 3rd District, several folks in, associated with NTS Development, Underhill & Associates, who's another major developer here in, in Louisville, and Kelly Construction, who does a lot of construction work uh, that, that does uh, any, anybody that's, that's uh, development dependent. Um, the only pack who DeRiff reported giving him $2,000, the max, was the Building Industry Association. So one of the things I thought was interesting about why Greenberg had the the, the realtors is that all the developers seem to be supporting Bill DeRiff, which is kind of surprising to me because, I mean, in in our interview, you'll hear uh, Bill, Craig Greenberg is thought of as a major developer. That is kind yeah, of yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that that's kind of one of the things that he's he's most well known for. Most of the criticism of him comes from him being such a developer. Uh, but all of the actual developers in town seem to be pouring a bunch of money into Bill DeRiff's campaign. Um, I don't know, Jasmine. Uh, given the the contours of the race and Louisville, are you surprised at anything uh, that you've seen uh, in the fundraising information? Uh, not really. That What you just said surprised me that developers are supporting Deeriff a, a little bit just because of who Greg, Craig Greenberg is. But I guess it also makes sense that they might support a Republican because they may believe he's more like business friendly. But I don't think those numbers are surprising, really. Yeah, I, I think... 
while Craig Greenberg certainly did make his bones as a developer and is going to probably govern as a development-friendly Democrat, I think that the the developers are smart in recognizing that their best bet to get the best policy possible <laughs> right. is to elect probably a just Republican. A Republican. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, okay, uh, the very top fundraiser among candidates for the legislature is Karen Berg. That surprised me, but once I dug into it, it didn't surprise me too much. So. Karen Berg is the incumbent senator from East Louisville. She was first elected in a special election back in 2020. I think that's right. Is it 2020? Yeah. Um, she's raised $153,000. Jasmine, you will probably remember this, but on March 19th, she made a speech about abortion in a committee meeting in Frankfurt. Uh, that speech went viral on social media, and in the next week, from March nineteenth uh, to seven days later, she received more than two thousand contributions, amounting to nearly sixty nine thousand dollars, with a median contribution of twenty five dollars. So that paid off for Karen Berg in uh-huh. a big way. So good, good for good for uh, Senator Berg. Glad that she was able to raise that much money. Hopefully, she's going to be uh, in a tough race. I think she's she's in a tough district. So hopefully, she's able to put that money to good use. The top fundraiser among Republican candidates for the legislature is Kevin Jackson. He's the Republican running for the House seat currently occupied by Patty Minter in Bowling Green. Representative Minter, though, isn't too far behind. Uh, Jackson's raised $131,000, and, and Minter has raised over $100,000. She's raised $104,000. Both Joe and Kelly Craft have max donated to Kevin Jackson, and, and for what it's worth, Kelly Craft lists her occupation as homemaker. I think she should probably start listing candidate for Kentucky governor. Uh, That's probably more relevant, uh, her more relevant job for what she's doing um, and giving this money to to legislative candidates. So that's going to be a very, very close election. I think maybe the the most closely watched, I don't want, I mean, I don't know, it could be a blowout in either direction, but I think it's going to be the most closely watched of the legislative races between um, Kevin Jackson and Patty Minter down there in Bowling Green. Amanda Bledsoe and Ken Fleming are the next two top legislative fundraisers behind Mr. Jackson. They've both had about $110,000 that they've raised for the general election. They're both running in suburban districts. Fleming is hoped to be reelected over Maria Sorolis. So Ken Fleming was elected in 2016. Maria Sorolis was elected in 2018. Ken Fleming was elected in 2020, and now they're facing off again, and Ken Fleming has a bunch of money that he is using in that race. Ms. Bledsoe is running in the 12th Senate District, where Democrats' original candidate was gerrymandered out. That was Paula Sester-Kissick. But they did manage, to, because she managed to file for election, they did manage to get a candidate on the ballot. Um, and, and so there will be a competitive election, but Ms. Bledsoe has more than $110,000. This is the, the seat that was formerly uh, held by Alice Forgey Kerr in Lexington, so it was a Republican seat prior anyway. Okay, so seven of the top ten legislative candidates in terms of raising money have are Republicans. Other Democrats who've raised a significant amount of money include Rachel Roberts, who's raised $99,000, Buddy Wheatley, who's raised $77,000, and Grayson Vandegrift, who's raised about $70,000. All three of those races, I expect, will be pretty close. Those Northern Kentucky ones where Rachel Roberts and Buddy Wheatley are, those are incumbent Democrats who are running um, in, in districts that are much difficult, much more difficult for them than they were uh, prior to redistricting, but they're well known. They're, uh, you know, they have a lot, a lot of connections to those communities, and I know that they're both working really hard to keep their seats. Grayson Vandegrift has been on the show already, uh, so he, he you can go back and listen to hit our interview with him, but he's very hopeful, and I think he's he's running a race um, that that is, um, you know, it, it's definitely definitely possible that he, he might and- win his seat. And that's an area that was Democrat and then recently became Republican. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, it's it's not a foregone Republican district, right? It's a it's a, um, you know deep deep Democratic roots in that area, Woodford County, um, with just recently in 2020 that a Republican took that seat. So those are the legislative races I wanted to highlight. Uh, the the craziest race that everybody uh, wants to point at uh, is the race for Franklin Circuit Franklin Circuit Court District One, uh, and it is it is still crazy. So Philip Shepard, who we've talked about lots and lots, he gets a lot of the state government court cases go through his courtroom. Um, he has a clear rate, a clear lead in the fundraising race. Now he's raised four hundred and twenty one 
thousand dollars for a countywide race in franklin county um so he's raised one hundred and eighty one thousand dollars from removing a two hundred and forty thousand dollar loan that he gave his own campaign that will probably mostly be refunded back for him but even just with one hundred and eighty one thousand dollars that's a ton of money for a judge race in central kentucky and that also is still more than joseph bilby who has raised one hundred and fifty one thousand dollars for 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 that race jasmine you you've been we've been talking about this one for a while i mean just just crazy stuff right yeah I mean, send some of that money to some local judicial candidates here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no like it is a really really important circuit court race though yeah. because of the 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 cases that go through there it's pretty important Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's just also a little bit of a silly contest between, you know, his, I mean, if you look at Philip Shepard's donors, it's like a who's who of the Democratic Party. And, it and truly and, is. And Joseph Bilby has the same on the Republican side. So it's definitely been uh, turned into a bit of a partisan race, even though I do think Joseph Bilby, Joseph Bilby himself has, has made himself out to be quite partisan. And Phil Shepard, I don't think intend intended to be like a democratic candidate i think he mostly just wanted to be a judge um but you know this is this has certainly happened to him okay one thing i wanted to pull out for sure is joe and kelly craft we talked about kelly craft a couple weeks ago and who she was they have a ton of money that's like central to their story and they have been very busy they doled out almost forty three thousand dollars themselves um for the general election to different candidates it's worth mentioning that you can only give a maximum of $2,000. So they kind of have to find ways to spread this around to lots of different people. So it's given $43,000 is kind of tough because you got to pick a bunch of candidates to give it to if you're Joe and Kelly Craft. Both have given the max contribution. So each of them, Joe and Kelly. So together, they've given $4,000 to several candidates. They include Stephen Rudy, Robbie Mills, Kevin Jackson, like we mentioned before, Amanda Bledsoe, Jared Bauman, DJ Johnson, Jason Nemus and Ryan Dotson. That's a mixture of challengers and incumbents. In addition, Joe Kraft himself, but not Kelly, have additionally given the max to Michael Kleins, Kyle Whalen, William Reed, Brandon Smith, and Charles Breitenbach. Kelly Kraft has given smaller contributions, not $2,000 contributions, but around $500 contributions to, to two other candidates. And that's uh, Briston, uh, Janusi Quinn, who's a candidate for Fayette County Clerk. Um, that That is uh, not expected to be too competitive a race. Don Blevins is very, very popular in that seat and has been for a very long time, but she's the Republican running in that race. And she's also given money to Dan Syme Jr., who's a candidate for Louisville Metro Council. He's running against Mark Fox. Dan Syme, of course, is the son of Senator Dan Syme, who uh, served in South Louisville for a very, very long time. So, um, one other thing I wanted to highlight before we move on, and, and that's that the Amendment 2 fight and, and the two organizations that are kind of uh, uh, raising money for that. So, protecting Ken- Protect Kentucky Access, which is the group that's opposed to Amendment 2. Amendment 2 is the abortion ban, um, which would outlaw uh, the Constitution seeing a right to abortion in the Constitution. Um, it's more complicated. It's actually kind of complicated, but the way that we're just kind of talking about it is like the abortion amendment. It's kind of frustrating, right? Because like even if we vote down amendment two abortion is not legal in kentucky um and also just because we put amendment two in the constitution doesn't mean that you know judges might not interpret the constitution in a different kind of way or that we couldn't just pass a law legalizing abortion so the whole amendment fight is kind of complicated but let's not get into that let's stick to the fundraising question um Protect Kentucky Access raised the most money of any organization um, that at about $1.5 million. Yes for Life, the opposite pro-amendment to group, they raised $367,000. Huge chunks of Protect Kentucky Access's money come from Planned Parenthood and the ACLU. That's about $1.2 million. And organizations like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU are not bound by any contribution limit, so they can just pour as much money into Protect Kentucky Access as they want to, so that's how they're able to give such a large amount of money other organizations such as the fairness campaign which is an lgbtq organization here in kentucky kentucky health justice network which is uh, kind of a more grassroots organization that works to um, secure abortions for women who need them um, and, and the kentucky religious coalition also kicked in money to to protect kentucky access and then in terms of individuals garvin and owlsley brown the brown family brown foreman we mentioned them in the greenberg stuff they each kicked in ten thousand dollars each to protect kentucky access Access, the total amount raised from individuals was $152,000. 
Yes for Life had its share of organizational help. The Family Foundation, Catholic Conference of Kentucky, Right to Life Education, Kentucky Right to Life Association, and the Kentucky Baptist Convention gave $357,000 total. That is, uh, of course, almost all of the money that they've been able to raise. The organization only raised about $3,000 in contributions from individuals. So it is definitely an organizational run effort. Um, it is worth saying that those other organizations, Family Foundation, Catholic Conference, Right to Life, etc., Kentucky Baptist Convention especially, they, are, oh, they raise money from individual groups, um, and individuals may just give to those groups who then in turn give it to those PACs. So it's not like it's, you know, they, those organizations might be raising money on behalf of, of that group. So, all right. What does any of this mean? Uh, you know, fundraising does have a huge impact on what campaigns are able to do. If you have money, you're able to run a good campaign. If you don't, it's tough. Um, so, you know, it isn't everything, but it's a big chunk. Uh, this is hopefully illuminating as to which races are going to be competitive, where we're going to be looking in um, on election in, on election day in November. Uh, Jasmine, anything you have to add about this fundraising stuff that we've just talked about? No, I think you you covered the numbers, Robert. <laughs> I do my best. I do my best. I never want to come cover the numbers segment. <laughs> yeah, I I get it. Yeah. All right. Well, tell us about this this crisis in the D- Department of Juvenile Justice. Okay. So you know, for the last almost year now, we've talked quite a bit about a crisis in Louisville Metro Corrections, which is the adult jail in Louisville. Um, but there's also a crisis going on in um, Jefferson County's only detention faci- juvenile detention facility, as well as DJJ facilities across the state. Um, I am, you know, I've been a public defender and I was a juvenile public defender. So I've, I've kind of known about things like this for a long time, um, but I've been kind of out of it now, but I had started hearing from friends who still work there, um, how dire the situation is. I was like, man, why is nobody talking about this? Um, but now people are starting to talk about it. There's been a wave three article as well as, um, a Herald leader article about what's going on. So a little bit of context first with what we're going to talk about. So there's a couple types of DJJ facilities, detention centers, and then youth development centers, which I'm going to call YDCs. Detention centers are meant for like short-term holding while charges are are pending or while a child is waiting for YDC placement. Um, So a YDC is where a youth goes to serve their sentence um, for treatment. And they have programming, therapy, classes, and things like that. So it's kind of the difference between like jail and prison. Right, right. That makes sense. There's also a third type of DJJ facility, which are group homes. Um, but this story is is about the other two. So we're going to talk about detention facilities and YDCs. Um, so one issue that was reported by the Herald Leader at Adair YDC, um, a youth with some pretty serious charges, a strangulation charge, and then a, a pending murder charge, allegedly attacked a staff member. Um, Another youth was involved and the two later attacked another resident. And then also um, in that part of the state in August, there was a quote unquote riot, according to internal documents from Warren Detention Center in Bowling Green. And so those are, you know, a couple more centers in the western part of the state. And then in Louisville, there's really just a myriad of issues, um, including a youth that allegedly was setting fires, an escape attempt, co-mingling of male and female residents, and potential, like, sexual contact between residents, um, doors and ceilings failing, children not getting to go outside, not getting showers, not getting phone calls. These are things that I had heard anecdotally, but now... Um, they've been reported by former employees. And they have so, a wider audience. Like they, they've actually been reported in, in like newspapers and stuff, right? Right. So in Louisville, the detention center is called 
Jefferson Regional Juvenile Detention Center, so JRJDC. Um, and it was not set up to be a detention center. It used to be a YDC called Audubon YDC. It closed for a few years. You know, we were we were closing YDCs because juvenile detention populations were down after Senate Bill 200, a 2015 juvenile justice, you know, comprehensive piece of legislation. And so that facility had closed and then the state had to reopen it whenever Metro Louisville cut funding for the Louisville Metro Youth Detention Center. And so there was really no choice because there had to be some place for youth to go in Louisville, even if it was just short term. And and let's let's revisit that for just one second and remember that the reason that they closed it was because of pension obligations that were that were foisted upon Metro yeah. government by the Bevan administration. That uh, the city itself tried to raise revenue that was voted down by Metro Council, and, and so therefore the city had said, you know, we're either going to raise revenue and keep services the same, or here's what we're going to cut. And the Metro Council decided to go with the cuts, and and those okay. cuts, um, you can revisit. It was a very strange. Um, um, amalgamation of a Metro Council people who voted for those cuts, but that's what led directly to the closure of the center. And and I think it seems directly to these problems that we're having. Right. And so this, this facility was never meant to be open as a detention center. It was supposed to be more of a tr- like long-term treatment facility, um, but it it's a detention center now. It is supposed to I believe only house 16 children. Um, I don't know if they're over capacity or under, but I, I do know that when they reopened it, Louisville is detaining more than 16 children. Um, and so children are getting sent um, to other further detention centers. I believe the closest one is in Adair County. So um, even just for short stays, before a charge is resolved or before being released, a child may be sent to another county away from their family where their family can't visit. But um, so back to JRJDC, there are 13 employees on staff instead of the necessary 29 that are apparently necessary to keep the facility running. So that's fewer than half of what they yeah. need. Yeah. And the facility was already short-staffed when it reopened as a detention center in 2020. So they never even really started at at being fully staffed. Michael Ross, a former supervisor there, said that children are being housed like animals and that's what is setting them off and, and creating a lot of these issues. He said that he quit last year because of the dangerous conditions and that he didn't even have detention experience when he worked as a supervisor there. Um, Another employee said that people are sometimes working 20 to 30 hour shifts. And Ross and another unnamed former employee um, have called for the center to close. Um, But like I said, the next closest facility is Adair County. The Justice Cabinet um, is the the cabinet and the Bashir administration that oversees the department of juvenile justice. And they haven't answered interview requests, um, but, but rather they've released public statements. Um, And this isn't really, you know, part of, of this story about the incidents that are happening at facilities, but it's worth noting In 2021, the Bashir administration launched an investigation into Lashana Harris, who was the newly appointed DJJ commissioner. Um, They moved to terminate her, and then she resigned as part of a settlement. But the investigation alleged that she created a toxic work environment. Um, Harris said that she was subject to massage noir like you know racism misogyny and we don't really know a lot about like what happened and and i don't know if she was just trying to like make the department better and people were resistant to changes or if it was a problem with how she treated employees i I don't know but there 
there were problems with administration at DJJ before. Um, Vicki Reed is now the commissioner and George Scott is the deputy commissioner, both of whom have significant DJJ experience. Um, but the employees in the wave three article have said that, um, the deputy commissioner, George Scott, that, that their concerns have fallen off on deaf ears, um, with the deputy commissioner. And so that's just a summary of, of kind of what's going on. And it, it's really like sickening to me that like we trust the state to take care of people in their care or custody, especially the most vulnerable people like children um, and that these issues are happening at these facilities. And, and I know that some of these things that are happening at the facilities sound terrible, but I don't think this is, about how bad kids are these days. These are kids in crisis. Um, and they, they come to these places at their worst. And they're being torn apart from their families. They're, it, there's issues with them being able to even talk to their families. Um, the former supervisor there has raised the alarm on, you know, how they're being housed and, and how it's causing these issues. Um, and, you know, I, it's important for the state to take better care of them and have a commissioner and employees um, running the Department of Juvenile Justice who have experience in working with youth, who have experience in trauma um, and evidence-based practices, and to, like, pay employees enough to do that job. Um, I know that staffing has been... A huge concern and they have raised wages but but they're operating at under 50 percent staff at least in louisville yeah and so you know while some of the choices that kids are making may be bad their brains are not fully developed they're in crisis um and these these incidents are becoming a, a statewide crisis not because of the kids because of the facilities the management the lack of staff um and so hopefully the Bashir administration can get these problems under control. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of issues here. It seems like that these kids that are in state, you know, in state custody are, are basically, you know, not being taken care of at all, um, yeah. which is a huge, a huge problem, a huge tragedy. And, you know, I, I, I hear totally what you're saying about like these kids, you know, all uh, kids who commit crimes or kids who are in trouble in in whatever way, um, you know, uh, they're, they're kids. Um, and, and especially for kids, like we should be working towards getting them back into society, giving them a chance to spend the rest of their, <laughs> the rest of their, the long lives that they have in front of them in, in productive and important ways. And I mean, we're basically taking bad situations and making them worse is what it feels like. So, you know, that, uh, that's just really sad. I mean, there's a lot of excuses, uh, and I mean, uh, excuses that, that seem to have a little bit of legitimacy. Everybody's having problems with staffing. Everybody's having trouble, um, keeping, keeping uh you know uh people in 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 uh in jobs especially hard jobs like these but but you know that's a responsibility that the state has and and we need to get it under control so you're you're exactly right hopefully hopefully that they're able to do it anything else nope that's about it all right well let's get to our interview with the historically black neighborhood assembly Muriel Gardner is an activist farmer and lifelong resident of Louisville's West End. Yolanda Walker is a leader in the California Neighborhood Leadership Association. And Amira Granger is an organizer in the Chickasaw neighborhood and a former candidate for Metro Council. For several years, they have been organizing opposition to the West End Opportunity Partnership, also known as the WEOP or the West End TIF, passed by the legislature in 2021. I've actually known Muriel several years uh, through the Kentucky Rural Urban Exchange, and I'm excited uh, for her and this group to share you know, their experiences and knowledges uh, about West Louisville. Muriel Gardner, Yolanda Walker, and Amira Granger, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Hey, y'all. Thank Thanks you. For having us. Hello. Yeah, of course. We're really excited to talk to you all. Um, so I'm going to start with Muriel here. Could you just tell us about um, how you got involved in organizing the issue of the West End TIF and why this issue is so important to you? 
Um, I've been attending the weekly community engagement sessions um, on Zoom in 2021, and where we were supposed to be able to ask questions about the TIF and receive some answers and, and feedback. And I was just stunned by the lack of information that folks who ran this call provided. They couldn't answer basic questions. Um, and folks who were asking questions that seemed to challenge the integrity of this plan, we were all met with lots of hostility. So immediately that made me skeptical. Um, I heard that the historically black neighborhood assembly um, was starting to organize around the issue. And I was like, hey, I could go and get some more information. And that's where I met these lovely folks. And we started researching um, different aspects of TIFFs. And um, we all joined the HBN assembly to start the campaign to stop the TIFF. Um, this is important to me. Um, I think 2020 uh, showed me like a different world was possible. And mm -hmm. uh, I think we were the ones that we have been waiting for. And I knew if something was going to be different, it would have to be folks like me who made it different. So, yeah. Yeah. So could you provide, and this question is kind of for each of you, could each of you give us a little bit of context about yourself? And uh, could you tell us a little bit about living in West Louisville? This is Yolanda Walker. And to your first question about the West End TIF, why is the issue so important to me? is because I am one of the residents that will be affected by this till for 20 years of my taxpayer money by being a homeowner. And I'm not at the age of any homestead that will give me any type of relief if there's any type of relief for the next 20 years. And so it's very important that everybody that is a renter, a homeowner, that lives in the West End understands how devastating this is to ask individuals for 20 years to fund developers and individuals in a plan that may cause displacement and also your descendant lose their wealth and their heritage. And a little bit about me is I have lived in the West End all my life. I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I love living in the West End. And West End, when I was growing up, it was family. You know, it wasn't people coming in to do things and make the rich get richer. The lady across the street knew you. The people down the street knew you. And so it was a neighborhood. And... A lot of with the merger and the urban renewal, all of those things have died. And we, we will get to one of the questions. And one of the questions was that you have about the money that's being poured in. And we don't see that. So a little bit about me. I've lived there 30 years. It's important to me that everyone knows how this impacts our lives. And I'll switch it to somebody else who wants to go So the question kind of struck me a little funny. Um, and I, I say that because there's a stigma that's not really fair that is often placed on the West End. But um, as a child born and raised in the Newburgh community, um, I really feel like the only difference of the West End and other parts of town is there's alleys primarily and not driveways. There's bigger houses and maybe smaller yards. But for the most part, um, our city is our city. And what I do notice and what I do feel as a, as a child who's grown up in the city, um, there hasn't been investment made in all parts of town. And that's not something that this tax plan can correct in the way that's going to impact those that have been affected for decades of divestment. And so for me, something about me, I work in the educational system. Um, I'm a social worker by training. But in general, I'm a lover of people. I once loved this city, um, but a lot of things have been exposed, corruption and, and mistreatment of people. And at the end of the day, who are we trying to build the city for? We should be trying to build up our city for our, ourselves, not for prospective other people coming in. That's ridiculous and that's short-sighted. The WEOP is an issue which, by definition, only impacts 
a portion of the city of Louisville, right? It's just it's just for the West End. It's the West End Opportunity Partnership. And, you know, as somebody who lives in Louisville that doesn't live in the West End, um, you know, I, I can just speak personally. Uh, it, it's kind of confusing sometimes to, like, get a handle on, on how people that live there feel because a lot of the folks that you know get get run out on on television or or or, you know make their opinions known uh uh in the newspaper or whatever um that live in the west end um they've been very supportive of the idea but i I have seen your messaging and i have seen a lot of people who have been uh, opposed to the tiff since the start um so you know I, i guess can you tell us a little bit more about the political dynamics that have led to this situation where where you have uh such mixed messages coming from uh from different parts of the the west end um well, I would say that the same political dynamics that lead us to every systemic issue, Pinky, folks trying to take over the world. Um, I would push back on this being an issue that only impacts the West End. If you live in J-Town and you work at a school in the West End, your employment taxes will be affected by um, the West End TIF. The WEOP legislation includes uh, both state and local property taxes local occupational and state income taxes and state sales tax. So if you come down here to visit me, Robert, and we go to McDonald's, we're buying something at, uh, we're buying a hamburger at McDonald's, that state sales tax is impacted by the West End TIF. And even beyond Louisville, we've seen TIFs in Lexington used to build a 21C hotel that leveraged $6 million in affordable housing, Um, TIFs in Moorhead and Somerset remove folks from their home in North Fork and Cundiff Square. Um, I've been talking to friends about the TIFs in Owensboro and Newport and the displacement that's occurred, especially um, in Newport as a result. And all of these um, TIFs have encompassed small areas. The West End TIF covers such a large area that entire counties out here should be where especially as we look at rural gentrification with folks building breweries in Whitesburg and developing the gorge. Um, This is a plan that was sold to us with a lot of missing information. And without context, I think someone will believe that this legislation, uh, that since this legislation impacts the West End, all the West End legislators or even Jefferson County legislators would not only have been on board with the plan, um, or at the table when it was created, or even at the bare minimum, they would have been aware of House Bill 321. Representative Attica Scott has said publicly that she found out about this plan at the same time as some of her constituents. We would also um, hope that um, the majority of legislators um, who created this the majority of the legislatures who created this, they don't even live in Jefferson County. And and there's an uproar right now that the state state legislature is making laws specifically for Louisville. Folks are pushing back on that, but not on this. Could you imagine if Representative Scott was sponsoring legislation for Manchester? I bet Senator Stivers would have got to Louisville faster than he did legislation he sponsored to create the <laughs> yeah i i certainly think that's true uh you know and 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 this isn't the first tiff uh that's been in louisville one of our very first shows like back in like 2016 or 17 was about the yum center tiff um mm-hmm. which has has a lot of problems as well and uh you know we we we've seen these tiffs happen a lot um, and, and of course this one is, is, is very different and very, very much larger than, than a lot of those, um, or the, really a bigger than any ever, I think maybe in anywhere. Um, so I, I do have another question just kind of about the, the, the politics of this situation. Um, you know, it, it, it feels like the dynamics of the TIF exists, uh, in a lot of the issues that exist already in West Louisville. I think that that's one of the things that Muriel was just saying. Um, this is kind of how we, how how a lot of systemic issues happened in 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 the city. Um, but more generally, do you think that there's a divide between the folks uh, that that people in the the rest of the city um, outside of the West End see as leaders in West Louisville and, and the people who actually you know live there that make their lives there? I'll speak to that. I think you have people who have um, maybe been elected to serve or who have been appointed in some way 
but they are not necessarily um, a realistic or um, connected person within the community in the way that they project themselves. Um, so I think if you, if you consider one, people are being manipulated from north, south, east, west. And so people tell you one thing and then if the truth is something else, you have the people affected that are being told another thing, go talk to this person. So we're all being played in this smoke and mirrors kind of game. And it, the community at large, Louisville at large, has already been encouraged to think heavily in their community um, based on their color, based on their neighborhood, instead of thinking of all of us as a broader connected people. And so when you have that, it's very easy to separate and divide people. And then when you have leaders who maybe they get a, a ham for Christmas or they get priority seating at some event, well, they usually start to turn and not really be concerned with the people because they, they get the hookup. And so unfortunately, some of us have grown tired of that. I'm one, but the three of us and those that we work with in the assembly are many others. Yeah, absolutely. So we want want to get into some of the details a little bit. The details of the WeOver, some of them are strange. Um, the bill authorizing the TIF was passed at the last second uh, without the documentation that's required from other TIF projects. And then um, the WEOP did not secure 501c3 status before raising the required $10 million in private donations, which called into question the legitimacy of several large gifts. And several board memberships reserved for community remember community members remain vacant. Um, whoever can answer this, are there any big items on the list of issues with the TIF that we've missed in that list? And is there one that feels the most troubling? Um, I think we should definitely be concerned that processes, the law, were not followed. If our our elected officials are not following the law on this TIF, perhaps we need to call other things that come out of Frankfurt and Metro Hall into question. And that goes for folks who currently serve as public officials and candidates. Um, these documents contain, obtained by WDRB show a whole slew of folks on November's ballot who were involved in creating the West End TIF. And those people have largely been silent on this issue. Um, Morgan McGarvey sent an email ahead of the press conference that announced this TIF saying that this could bring a potential $1 billion of investment to the West. Now that should be campaign worthy. Um, the same thing applies for Craig Greenberg, who wants to be our next mayor, but can't speak to the economic plan that he created, not only with this TIF, but TIFs in Lexington and Kansas City that leveraged affordable housing to build hotels. Um, there are nonprofits who serve the West End that are not breaking the law. They can put $10 million to good use right now and today. Um, as the folks that change today, change tomorrow or decode project or Caitlin's house of joy, how they'd spend $10 million. Philanthropy doesn't see the urgency of, of needs small nonprofits feel, and these organizations are rarely given an audience with large funders. Everything that the West End needs, I believe, is already in the West End. We are more than capable, and we don't need the WEOP as a middle person. Uh, we need to start looking at folks' self-interest, and um, if their self-interest align with tangible material things that we can see, look around. I've had the same senator since I was eight years old. And look around. The proof is it's out there already. Um, I'll let Miss Yolanda talk about transparency being an issue. Well, not only the transparency, when you were talking about, I kind of jumped up when you talked about leaders, because also this is a gatekeeper. These are the same individuals, as you call them well-known leaders, that are gatekeepers to try to make it seem like the community is following because these are the same agencies. And I think it's a thing that you need to go back and see. But not only the transparency, my thing is how can you run the WEOP when you don't have all the board members in place, when you have individuals signing documents and nobody 
knows that these documents are signed. You have poured in, you say, in $30 million into projects when you have a crumbling structure. The structure is coming. It's not in place. So how can it be sound, you know, in any type of way? How can it be sound when the dots are not connected and those sitting there are just as lost as the rest? We could um, talk about discrepancies in residency of board members to conflicts of interest um, with One West or the big lie of the TIF being a response to the 2020 movement for Black Lives. Um, we know that in 2015, developer Steve Poe introduced the idea of the West End becoming a TIF district. And Poe has ties to One West and Poe has ties to Greenberg. And it just makes this entire thing a questionable situation. Yeah. And one follow-up question here, and I'll ask Amira, you know, the three of you and a, a lot of other community members have been calling out these concerns about the TIF for a long time now. Can you tell us how your concerns have been received by the rest of the community? Well, I mean, one, the community is not aware. Quite frankly, the Historically Black Neighborhood Assembly has more information about this effort than anything that you see from any of the people who put it forth, anything that you would find on the We Out Board's Twitter or website. So if it's so grand, if it's so great, why is it not readily available? They initially set up a budget for, um, I think it was social outreach, and it was they started off saying $150. So they have no Pretty interest. <laughs> yeah, they have no interest. Now, they beefed it up a little bit to make it not seem so chintzy, but... They have no interest in reaching out to the public. They haven't canvassed. They haven't sent out mailers. They are not out in the streets. We are doing that. And every time we encounter people, they are in awe. They are angry. They are frustrated. Many of them are disillusioned because they're like, there they go again. And the problem with that is this has been done to people time and time again. So people don't want to fight because they're tired of fighting the same, same old players doing the same old thing to the same people. And we're not tired of that. We're going to keep fighting. But the, but the, like you said, if it was so great, like, like Mario mentioned, Morgan McGarvey says, awesome. It's, it's wonderful. They use all these beautiful words. Why aren't you out selling it? Why aren't you out peddling your product? Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, oh. That, I'm sorry. Mm, go ahead. Go and ahead. That, you know, when you talk about the community and the people, they have wrote letters to the councils. They have called to tell them how they are totally displeased and what they need to do to get rid of that law that will affect them. So there has been just overwhelming response from the community because if we go in the data, which they may not let you know, but there have been floods of calls, there have been floods of letters and our legislation, our government and I wants to keep us ignorant from the fact, but we are here to give the knowledge to it. I'm We're sorry. informing the public and we don't even have a budget. They're using taxpayer dollars to pay staff and to pay for mailing or whatever they're doing, but they can't find a way to get to the people. They, we even had to make suggestions for them with their operations for the We Are Board, which is, uh, you know, makes you want to vomit, really, because it's like they can't even figure out how to make a board run. And so just I just want to say that we're operating off regular people, sweat and tears and, and coins out of our out of our pocket. They have a beefy budget and they still can't figure it out. But it's so great. So I, I did want to ask this question, and, and, and I'm really interested in the answer, Mario. You, you had said earlier that like everything that we need in the West End, we already have, uh, which I think is a really beautiful sentiment. Um, but you know, one one of the things that I hear a lot uh, when when discussion about th this this tiff, especially among supporters, is like, well, it will allow us to have thirty million dollars of investment, which is just a huge opportunity for us here in the West End, um, and, and that is a significant chunk of money for anywhere. Um, 
and, and you know, you guys have done a good job to detail specifically the problems with the government or, or the administration of this and, and who it's going to and, and how it all kind of uh, works out. But do you think that there are ways to reform this process uh, that, that can make the WEOP successful? Are there ways that this legislation could be turned around if there were significant changes to it? Or is the whole process doomed? What, 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 is, the, what is the best outcome for this entire situation uh, that, that we find ourselves within right now? It's doomed. How can you put a Band-Aid, and I'm going to use this, on syphilis? This is a, a disease that is spreading. This is a disease that cannot be contained. We're putting a Band-Aid on it. Syphilis is it's a form of syphilis. If we go into definition, that's what this we up. 30 million may seem to be a lot of money. But 30 million is not a lot of money when you talk about investment because it depends on what the project would be. One project may cost that depending on the project. But when we look at this WEOP board and when we look at the seats on this WEOP board, we're talking about individuals that are supposed to be community related, know the community, talk for the community, come back. Well, it's already heavy. It's already here with 12 because 12 multiplication addition, 12 is greater than nine. And then you don't even have all the seats filled. And then when you have individuals that sit there, they don't even know what community they live in. Then you got individuals that saying they're not going to even talk to the community and you are leading the community. So it's not for the community. It's for investors and those leaders that sit that were appointed, which are the same gatekeepers that have been the gatekeepers for years that have invested, that have, I wouldn't just say robbed the community because when you talk about that 30 million compared to they saying that there was billions poured in here and you can walk from block to block and wonder, Where's the billion? That'd be the same with the 30. That's like our home taxes will pay for this for the next 20 years. If you a homeowner, property owner, if you're renting, your landlord is going to have to take your rent up. But to have somebody to say, Audacity, well, my home's not affected because it's in a hundred and something thousand. So I'm protected from taxes. Well, the homes here are 50,000 or less. So who really is benefiting from the 30? And if you got nine people against 12 people that already decided from their friends what West Louisville is going to look like, 30 million is not no money. It's what will come over within the 20 years of the displacement. 30 million is not a whole lot of money, and a lot of people think 30 million is a lot. There are projects that cost 17 million. We look at how much did the Omni cost us to build? You know, when you start looking at what the projects are, if you go back, I don't know, you may have that uh, data, Mario. What was the cost of the 21 in Lexington that that tier failed and they went back? and ask to be forgiven. You know, so how is this set? So when we say 30 million, we're not talking about a lot of money compared to what actually a project could cost. Investment here often means development by wealthy people and this method hasn't worked out well for us because profits don't ever trickle down. Wealth is continuously hoarded and 30 million is going to yield someone or someone's um, a very large return on their investment. Um, I am not willing to leverage the homes of my friends, family and neighbors to increase the value of my home, period, full stop. Um, and 30 million dollars is not worth mass displacement. There was an article, I think, in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, one of the two, that said with every $100 increase in median rent, um, there is an associated 9% increase in the estimated houselessness rate. The WEOP uh, um, 
gets money from 80% of new tax revenue, and that's tax revenue above a certain threshold, above the baseline. With increased property values driving rent higher and higher, we are going to be looking at mass displacement. And we're encountering folks when we canvass that are looking at $300 increases all at once. I cannot afford to live in my home right now if my rent up if my rent went up $300 at once. And we've just seen an investor from Atlanta purchase hundreds of homes in the West. Those folks' rent is going to go up. If this isn't doom, I don't know what is. Yeah, no, that that's well put. Uh, I, I appreciate all of your sentiments, all of your emotions in this. Um, one of the things I've heard you guys say continuously is, is that, you know, a lot of this has been placed upon you um, by gatekeepers, by by legislators from outside of Louisville and, and by people who, who don't have a lot of uh, skin in the game in the community. Um, and, and I think that often you know changes to the west end people who have like want to want to make a difference or whatever uh they they often come from outside of the west end and and, and you know all three of you uh, at the beginning mentioned um how you're, you're lifelong residents of of that part of the city and i'm interested in hearing each of you tell us you know what is your dream for the future of west louisville what is it that you would like for it to look like in, you know 20 30 years however long the tiff is supposed to look like if that time elapsed and you guys uh, were given control uh, what's your dream for how it would look like and, and how would it be different if at all uh, from how it is now can i go Okay. Okay. I want to say this two things. Um, one, when you say these gatekeepers and different individuals, it's not so much that they are totally flawed or they started off flawed. Some of them started off flawed. Some of them became flawed. Some of them maybe have always been flawed, whatever. I would say like, if you're a Jurassic Park fan, I like to refer to this TIFF as the Indominus Rex type TIFF. It's a made up dinosaur. It's not real. And what happened at the end of the movie, people were like, that was a bad idea. We've been trying to warn that this is a made up. This is a made up monster. It's not a real dinosaur. Don't do it. And just like the movie theme, humans, don't get in, don't, don't mess yourself up. And that's what we did. So that's what they're trying to do with this tip. Additionally, I would say like Darth Vader. Darth Vader didn't start off as a bad character. He went to the dark side, turned into Darth Vader, <laughs> a great, exciting character, but problematic. So I think it's the same thing with these different gatekeepers and leaders. My dream for the West is the same for my dream for the city. I feel like our city is dying. I see creativity in Jeffersonville. I see creativity in Lexington. And I think it's a damn shame that our city is patterning our growth after Cincinnati and Lexington. And you can't build trying to copy and mimic somebody else. But you see so much of our stuff is starting to become cliche and a joke. And when you talk about homelessness, the the rate that Mariel just talked about and increasing homelessness, we already have lots of people begging at stores, under overpasses. Um, They're passing, trying to charge homeless people fines. I feel like our leadership locally has has really given up on their power to shape and, and mold our city into a place that's livable and enjoyable for all people. And West Louisville should be the same. There should definitely be heavy investment in areas that have been underdeveloped. But that does not mean a rich developer takes those funds, builds what they want so they can turn a profit. That's not the way that the development needs to be. It needs to be smart investment smart development with different players at the table. Everybody shouldn't be an attorney. Everybody shouldn't be wealthy. There should be farmers there. There should be business people there. There should be teachers there, social workers there, all types of people at the table. And particularly, most importantly, people from that community should be the ones listened to the most, which is something that did not happen with this. What I want to see is where the community, the citizens, not just the West End, because this is all over Metro, that voices are heard, that what they know that is best for their communities is heard, and those things are done. Because even in rural area, they are just wiping out the forest, the land, these type of things, and they're fighting too. It may not be the TIF, but it's all based down to the developer and what they want. What I want is the community, the residents' voices to be heard and those other things that we see, not those gatekeepers, leaders, legislations from places because the voices never heard. The voices that are heard are not ours. 
when we talk about the TIF and we look at it, who lobbied it for it? 2019, we was under law of COVID. Who was out? We had engagement. There was no engagement of the community. So mine is seeing the community. A dream of community land trust and rent control and fair leases that include an option to purchase um, and a historically black neighborhood ordinance. I dream of policy that protects us from gentrification and removal. Um, like the scripture and Hamilton say, I want to sit under my own vine and fig tree where no one can make me afraid. That's what I want. I want to direct my own path. Yeah, I, I think those are good dreams for the West End and, and for the city of Louisville. And uh, we really appreciate you all coming on the show and sharing your advocacy and your perspective with us. Um, but before we let you go, Mariel, if people are interested in helping you all out, how can they get in touch with the Historically Black Neighborhood Assembly? Um, you can go to our website, hbnassembly.org. Um, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and make sure you sign the petition to stop the West End TIF. All right, everybody, thank you very much for joining us. We really do appreciate all of you. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter with our show notes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast network. All right. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week. <laughs>